In our reading from New Testament letters this Holy Week, we have alternated between Hebrews and 1 Corinthians. Monday, in the first lection, Hebrews invited us to imagine a world quite different from ours and to think of Christ's death in terms of a sacrifice that cleansed our consciences, enabling us to know God in our hearts within a new covenant. Then Paul asked his first readers in Corinth and us to grasp that the foolishness and weakness of the cross, a stumbling block to every wisdom of this world, and a cause of shame to all who live by the world's wisdom is actually the lens through which we must perceive God's way of working in the world. Both ancient texts agree that the cross of Jesus is more than a fact of the past. It has the power to shape our present. This morning, we hear again from Hebrews. The passage we have just heard is the climax of a section of this letter that begins this way. Faith is the confident assurance concerning what we hope for and conviction about things we do not see. Faith believes that the worlds were created by the Word of God, and what is visible came into being by what is invisible. Hearing these statements, we are reminded of how this composition imagines the world in terms which regard the invisible heaven, God's realm, as more real and more perfect than the visible world, the realm of the merely mortal, and which regard human existence as directed toward that fuller and richer existence, which is God's. These words were directed to believers who were losing the confident assurance concerning their hope, who were growing less than convinced about things they did not see. As we read between the lines in Hebrews, we see that some of the believers addressed by the author were, in fact, turning away from their first enthusiasm, were even abandoning their assemblies altogether. The cause seems to have been the weight of harsh experience. They had not been killed for their faith, but they were being mocked for it. Some of them had been imprisoned. Others had had their property confiscated. On top of these things, which brought shame on people in antiquity, just as homelessness and jail have a way of bringing shame on people today, they drew contempt from outsiders and then internalized it because they were the followers of a cult founder who had suffered the most shameful of all deaths, a death only slaves and losers 
had to suffer. And if Jesus was a loser, they were losers by association. Persecution is much less hard on faith than mockery. Persecution and martyrdom attack only our flesh and bones. Mockery attacks our minds and makes us ashamed. The author of Hebrews responds to his readers' sense of shame and their temptation to give up by forging another magnificent image of mortal human life as directed to the living God, an image which has fundamentally shaped all Christian spirituality. Hebrews pictures his readers as people on a grand pilgrimage toward God. They are not on an external, physical journey through material space. They are on a pilgrimage of moral transformation through the moments of their lives as their hearts turn progressively toward their source and destiny and as their movement toward the invisible God is propelled by faith. In the beginning of this letter, the author warns his readers with a negative example of a failed pilgrimage. He reminds them of the wandering people of Israel in the desert generation after the Exodus and how many of them had failed to reach their goal in the promised land, their rest, precisely because of their lack of faith. But believers in Christ, he reminds them, are not making their way to a physical country where they could rest. They were on pilgrimage to God's presence and the Sabbath rest that is God's own life. Each step toward their goal is marked by their response of faith in the living God at every embodied moment of every mortal day. As he says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the wilderness. And immediately to, before today's lesson, which calls Jesus pioneer and perfecter of faith, the author summons as witnesses to such faith and therefore as positive examples to his readers all those who in the Bible story had heard God's call in the today of their lives, from Abel to the Maccabees. All of them had lived by faith, he says. All of them received testimony from God. And as with other New Testament writers, Abraham, above all, is singled out as the example of faith. He left his own home, became homeless, to wander in a land that he did not know because of his obedient faith in the God who called him. He and his children lived in tents, says our author, because the homeland they sought was not simply the physical country of Canaan. They were already there. Rather, Abraham, as he says, sojourned in the promised land 
as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs of the same promise, because he was looking forward to a city with foundations, whose designer and builder is God. What Abraham truly sought as he wandered the land was his heavenly homeland in the presence of God. The author says that Abraham and his children sought a better heavenly home. Wherefore, he notes, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Our ancestors in the faith were willing to do without home, possessions, and honor because of their faith in the living God. Abraham was even ready to sacrifice his only son because he was convinced that God was able to raise him from the dead. The living God gives life. What Hebrews thus describes as a struggle for survival among ancient nomads in search of a homeland is then the external expression of what he understands to be a process of moral transformation in the human heart through faith. The supreme model for such transformation is Jesus himself, whom the author calls pioneer and perfecter of faith. He is pioneer because he goes before us. He is perfecter because he has arrived where we wish to go. We remember from our first sermon that Hebrews describes Jesus as entering into his human existence with the exultant cry, I have come to do your will, O God. But that will turned out to be for Jesus, as for all humans, not easily done. Hebrews speaks of Jesus in the days of his flesh, crying out with loud cries and tears. The scene echoes the Gospels describing Jesus' agony in the garden before his execution. The author declares that even though Jesus was God's son, he had to learn obedience from the things that he suffered. And by that means becoming perfect or mature, he became the source of salvation to those in turn who obey him. Jesus' faithful obedience is expressed at the moment of his death, to be sure. But that moment was prepared for by all that he experienced, all that he suffered, as Jesus learned in the way that we must all learn what faith in the living God truly entails. Jesus needed to be educated as Son of God, and his lessons involved the inevitable pain of growing into full maturity. In the image of human life as pilgrimage to God that moves moment by moment through life and ends only when death opens us to the presence of God, 
Jesus moves before us, himself transformed moment by moment through his response to God in every circumstance. And so as our passage describes it, surrounded by that great cloud of witnesses who were the heroes of Israel's faith, Jesus showed himself the perfect example for all of us who believe. He despised the shame of the cross because of the joy that was placed before him. And enduring the cross, he took his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us, says Hebrews, keep our eyes on Jesus. Immediately after the passage we have just read, then, the author turns to direct exhortation of his readers. And all of us who, out of weariness in the journey or shame at our commitments, are tempted to abandon the assembly of the faithful or leave the pilgrimage altogether. Using the image of the race that was suggested by the great cloud of witnesses, think of the Olympic Stadium at the end of the Olympic marathon and his injunction to run the race that lies before us as we look to Jesus, our pioneer. He tells his readers and us, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed. Why should we so summon our energies and move forward in a journey that seems much harder than the Olympic marathon, that seems to involve so much pain and shame that we sometimes do not even see the joy that lies before us? Hebrews answers this question by reminding his readers and us that what we suffer in our mortal lives is our education as le legitimate children of God. Just as Jesus, although God's Son, learned obedience through what he suffered and thus reached maturity, so are we told to recognize in the hard instructions and discipline that we experience day by day the love that God shows his children in seeking to make them grow up into full adulthood as his children, leading them to maturity. You are enduring, says Hebrews, for the sake of an education. Hebrews reminds us, God is treating you as sons or as legitimate children. And if we endure to the end, then with Jesus, who despised the shame of the cross and kept his eyes on the joy that was set before him, we too will enter fully into the presence of the invisible God who summons us every day through what is seen. And then we will experience the great company of the angels in festal array and the assembly of the firstborn inscribed in heaven, and God, the judge of all beings, and at last, Jesus, 
the mediator of a new covenant, whose blood, as it was poured out, speaks more loudly than did the blood of Abel. And then we shall at last have come home. <laughs>